The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, we have been studying our own hearts. We've been assessing our souls. We've been asking, what are the instincts and impulses that guide me? What do I care about, really, really care about deep down? It's been humbling work. Some of the things that we care about are not so healthy. Some of our knee-jerk responses are downright harmful. They cause pain to us and to those around us. And yet they're so much a part of us, so, so deeply embedded in our psychic DNA, we cannot imagine thinking or reacting in, in any other way. And then along comes God. God, the good book tells us, wants all of us, body, mind, and soul. God wants to clean the gunk out of our hearts, and then the Holy One wants to reshape us. Really? How does God plan to do that? Well, today, in the fifth sermon in this series, we turn our attention to Jesus. Jesus, Christians claim, plays a critical role in God's plan to remake the human heart. God, we say, approaches humankind reaches out to us in the person of Jesus. And according to scripture, this Galilean rabbi, this, this teacher, this storyteller is, is not content with just jotting down a few proverbs on the chalkboard in our mind. Jesus aims to get personal. Jesus, says theologian James K.A. Smith, is after your wants your loves, your yearnings. Is that what we expect from Jesus? Do we want him messing around with our desires, our longings? Do we want anyone to tell us what to yearn for? Good question. Listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, the 12th verse. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, from later in the same gospel, John 21, beginning with the 15th verse. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He, he said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. 
A second time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A quick bit of scene setting. During the month of September, Fifth Avenue spent time talking about things that God loves. We talked about virtues like justice and mercy. God loves justice. What might it mean for us to love justice too? Today we move into the second section of this this three-part series. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the role that Jesus plays in reshaping the human heart. And to start, today we're going to consider what it means to love Jesus. Now, similar to what we said about God, learning to love Jesus is like learning to love any other person. Learning to love Jesus means attending to and loving the things that Jesus loves. As we start down that road this morning, I'm going to be a bit more personal than usual. Testimony seems appropriate to today's topic. If this isn't your cup of tea, don't worry. Next week, Charlene will be in the pulpit and we'll fix everything. (laughs) As a young child, I could list all the people whom I loved. Who do you love? My Aunt Jeanette would ask. I love my mommy and my daddy and most of the time my little brother. I love my Aunt Net and my grandma and my grandma and my grandpa and the other grandpa. I love Fluffy the cat and I love Jesus. I'd always add our Lord's name at the end of the list, little cherub that I was. I love Jesus. Now where did that come from? Guided by trusted adults, children, children will sling love around with ease. You've seen that. You saw that right down here this morning. A lot of different people suggested that I throw a little love in Jesus' direction. My mother, my grandmother, the local church, Sunday school teachers were relentless in letting us kids know that we were loved by Jesus. We sang versions of this truth every week. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. This repetition, some would call it indoctrination, worked, even though Jesus never was at our dinner table, the way others on my list were present, spooning potatoes onto my plate like grandma or rubbing against my leg like Fluffy the cat, I came to think of Jesus as someone who loved me. And so, I loved him back. At church, I was given a glow-in-the-dark statue of the Good Shepherd for memorizing a Bible verse. I put it on my dresser. Jesus loves me. 
This I know. As an adolescent, though, my glow-in-the-dark statue got lost, <laughs> hidden behind piles of sports equipment and science fiction novels. Like most teens, I spent my days wearing out the knees of my jeans and trying to figure out who I was. And, and, and part of that journey meant weighing the words that I'd once tossed around so easily. Somewhere around eighth grade, you know how this goes, Somewhere around eighth grade, those three words, I and love and you, to quote the brothers, became hard to say. So while I grew practiced in the four-letter words that were part of every high school student's vocabulary, I grew tight-lipped when it came to L-O-V-E, and especially tight-lipped when it came to Jesus. Danger, Will Robinson, don't go there. And yet, in college, I started encountering people who went there all the time. I had friends who called themselves evangelicals. They, they carried zipped up Bibles around campus. They, they slapped Christian fish stickers on the bumpers of their cars. They spoke about their love for Jesus with earnest ease. Listening to them, I felt a little jealous. They had this personal and passionate connection with God. They were, they were tight with the Lord. But try as I might, I, I, I couldn't find it in my heart to talk that way. It didn't feel authentic to me. It didn't feel honest. I told one friend, I'm not even sure I know who Jesus is. So naturally, I became a religion major. I tugged on the end of the proverbial yarn. I pulled and pulled. More questions unraveled. Eventually, I applied to seminary. Uh, I was the student, and Jesus was the, was the object of my studies. He was the, the mystery to be deciphered via scholarly books, class discussions, and, and papers written in the wee hours of the morning. I, I was determined to figure out this Galilean rabbi from the first century. I became as Flannery O'Connor once put it, Christ haunted. I read about Jesus in, in Western theology, in Latin American liberation texts, in feminist scholarship. I, I read believers and I read atheists. I, I read dedicated followers and I, I read people who found Christianity to be absolute drivel or worse, a, a sort of toxic plague on the world. How, I wonder, how, how can there be so many different takes on who Jesus is? Once, while working on a theology paper in the wee hours of the morning, my seminary roommate asked me, what's the plural of Jesus? I don't know, I responded, Jesus? Why do you ask? Because, he grumped, there are so many different Jesus, and he was right. The cover of today's bulletin, did you take a peek at that? The cover of today's bulletin, beautifully designed by Vashina Brisbane, reminds us that, that in every age and in every culture, people have embraced Jesus, clung to Jesus. All sorts of different people have seen something good and admirable and worthy in this Son of Mary. And consequently, all sorts of different people have made Jesus their own. 
They picture Jesus dressing the way they dress, with physical features resembling those they see in the mirror. Millions, billions of people have embraced Jesus as someone who is intimately acquainted with, with their troubles and their travails. It's powerful stuff. And yet, the malleability of Jesus troubled me. The many faces of Jesus was a head-scratcher. Weren't all these different takes on Jesus evidence that every Christian manufactures a Jesus who works for them, who fits their circumstances, their needs? You see where I'm going, right? If everyone has their own personal Jesus, is there really a there there? Or is Jesus a fantasy, a crutch that our minds grab to get us through hard times? Here's someone who magically understands me, a, a glow-in-the-dark good shepherd who will always be at my side. Have we cast and recast Jesus so thoroughly in our own image that we've, we've lost all meaningful connection to a distinct person born of Mary, raised in Nazareth, taught and preached and healed in Galilee, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. You, you know how it goes. For a period of time, my personal search for Jesus bogged down, buried amidst a huge pile of books and theories and perspectives. After unspooling what countless other people thought I wasn't closer to my goal, something I both wanted and feared, an encounter. I wanted what those evangelicals seemed to have, a relationship with, with the one that the angel Gabriel named Emmanuel, God with us. I, I felt like every map that I'd consulted led me to a, a different, many of them interesting place, but I, but I never got to X marks the spot. I never found the buried treasure, my elusive quarry. But the story doesn't stop there. I never caught that will-o'-wisp, but in pursuing it, something else happened. Like all those cautionary fairy tales of yore, I failed to realize in my pursuit that I was walking step by step by step deeper into the dark woods. And eventually I came to a place, to a state of mind, to a realization that's been shared by so many people of faith. Most of us get there at some time. I realized I was lost. I was lost, to quote the Italian poet Dante, in a dark forest, and to make matters worse, I felt like I was being watched, paranoid. I felt like Shasta, the main character in C.S. Lewis' novel, A Horse and His Boy. I was in a bleak place, but I was not alone. Something else was in the desert with me, tracking me, hunting me. In the novel, Shasta catches a glimpse of the beast. It's a, it's a shadow on the horizon. It's, it's a distant roar in the night. But eventually, Shasta is chased by it, an enormous lion with sharp claws. The creature slashes at him, and, and Shasta flees. The lion pursues. It chases Shasta right out 
of the desert. The thing that I most appreciate about C.S. Lewis, and for that matter, Southern author Flannery O'Connor and Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard is their insistence that any real encounter with Jesus is risky. The disciples knew this. Walk down the road with Jesus and parts of yourself, pieces of your soul, perspectives that you cherish are at risk of being carved away. And that's been my experience. On this journey of life, I've come to see Jesus not as a subject to be mastered or an object to be pinned down like a moth on a poster board, but as an active force loose in the world. Jesus is a beast prowling the wilds. Good, says C.S. Lewis, but not safe, devoted to freeing us from our self-absorbed, frightened, miserable selves, compelling us to run out of our self-imposed deserts, to run to places where we can do some good, but not necessarily safe things. What sort of things? Well, says theologian Karl Barth, if you want to know what the Lion of God wants of us, if you want to know what the Lion of God loves, then just watch him. <laughs> watch him heal festering wounds. Watch him embrace community over cynicism and neighbor over self. Watch him value humility over arrogance and kindness over cruelty. Watch him encourage people, people who have nothing in common, nothing but the space they share on this planet to see each other, to care about each other, to love each other. That's the quintessential Jesus, right? Sitting at table, Jesus never stopped inviting more and more people to sit down to supper. His guest list was completely out of control. You know that cocktail party first date question, what person, living or dead, would you most like to have dinner with? Well, when it comes to that question, Jesus utterly fails. He asks, what sort of person would you least like to sit next to at dinner? And as soon as you answer, bam, Jesus fires off a special invitation and sits that person right next to you. That's Christ's persistent gig. He really does love all the children of the world and he won't be satisfied until we do the same. This explains why, according to the good book, Jesus invites Jews to sit next to Greeks, harlots to pass the potatoes to tax collectors, the wealthy to pour wine for the impoverished, red staters to chit-chat with blue staters, and on and on and on, everyone smushed together at one table. Makes for a nice picture, but in our hard-hearted world, it is a tough sell. Even God, says scripture, has trouble getting people to come to this party. The king, says Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, is disappointed by the turnout for the official banquet, so he sends his servants out to the highways and the byways, inviting everyone to come and still regrets pour in. Why? Why would people 
turned down a chance to feast at the palace? Well, that's actually an easy one for us to answer. You basic Jesus. Sometimes the last thing that we want to do is pass the cup of salvation and the bread of life to our neighbor. But still, Jesus keeps inviting. Why? Well, because he knows, Jesus knows that without each other, without everyone at the table, healing and salvation and the pursuit of the common good is infinitely more difficult and maybe impossible. And that's where I start to get mystical. Cue the dim lights, turn on the smoke machine, seriously mystical. I'm convinced that Jesus has never stopped trying to pull off the impossible. The lion is still active in the world today. He's still trying to chase everyone out of their deserts to gather around one mammoth table. Okay, one story, and then we'll feast. As some of you know, my wife Amy and I have a cabin in far northern Minnesota, really far north Minnesota. We are one mile south of the Canadian border. It's a retreat, a place of peace and beauty. Our cabin there is rustic, but it does have indoor plumbing, and this pedestrian fact leads to my story. Back in August, I opened up the phone book and called the first name under the heading, septic tank pumping. It was time. <laughs> I had a quick chat with the fellow on the phone, Steve. Steve took down the address. He promised to pump the tank the following Monday, a day when we would be gone, praise the Lord. And I promised to leave a check for $200 for him under the welcome mat. I checked another item off my to-do list, easy peasy. Or so I thought. Returning on Tuesday to the cabin, I found the check still waiting under the welcome mat and no evidence that the tank had been pumped, so I called Steve back in my best New York, what the heck are you doing voice. Hey, I said, this is Scott out on Lake Ojibwe. What happened? I thought you were going to pump our tank yesterday. Well, Steve said, I'm awfully sorry about that. I've been dealing with a few things. Uh, you see, I just got diagnosed with cancer. It's my third go-round, and I've been trying to set up doctor's appointments and all that. Whoa, I said, I I'm sorry to hear that. Very sorry. Listen, you need to focus on getting better. I'll call someone else. No, he said quickly. I can use the $200. How about I come next Monday? That would be fine, I replied. I I'll see you then. Oh, oh, and Steve, if it's okay, I'll put you in my prayers. Sure, he said. Hanging up, I whined a little bit to Amy. I really don't want to get in a pastoral relationship with the guy who's pumping our sewage, but what else can I do? The dude's got cancer. The following Monday was a miserable day. It was rainy, it was chilly, the mosquitoes were flying around in thick attack squadrons. And then at about 7 a.m., the worst-looking septic tank truck I've ever seen came rumbling down our driveway. Now, none of them look very good, but this thing was belching 
smoke and losing paint, and it was spackled with all the stuff that it had come to vacuum out of our tank. I walked outside, intending to hand Steve his check and beat a hasty retreat. Rounding the back of the truck, I found him, wearing a red MAGA hat, kneeling and uncoiling some hoses. As he stood up to greet me, my eyes flashed to a big green Jesus fish decal on the back of the truck. Steve noticed my glance. Do you know what that is? He asked. Yes, I said, it's the ancient symbol for Christ. I knew you'd know, Steve replied. I knew you'd know because you said you'd pray for me. Well, I mumbled, I sort of had to do it. I'm a pastor. <laughs> well, at that, Steve's eyes lit up. Me too. I'm an associate pastor at the Independent Gospel Church in town. I smiled. It was an absurdly awful moment. The smoke, the rain, the mosquitoes, the smell, the Jesus sticker. Somewhere in my head, a voice was screaming, you are on vacation, do not engage. Hand the man his check and walk away. But Steve was still talking. Sometimes, he chuckled, I can't tell the difference between my two jobs. Both involve helping people get rid of their, well, you know. <laughs> anyway, Scott, thanks for giving me an extra week. I've got to admit, I'm sort of worried about this whole cancer thing. The doctors say I'm tough, and I've beaten it twice, but I'm worried. I've got a daughter in college, bills to pay. So I'm wondering, can we pray? And with that, he peeled off his heavy black, disgusting looking gloves. And there in the smoke and rain and stink of life, Steve took my hands, bowed his head and began, precious Lord. When I got back in the house, mosquito-bitten and wiping more than rain from my eyes, Amy asked, what took you so long? Jesus, I said. <laughs> Jesus and his meddling ways. Go from this place with the love of Jesus in your hearts, trusting in the love of God and the grace of our Lord and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.